to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses uh, 14 to 25. And if you would... Bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for the joy that it is to gather in your house to worship. We praise you, O Lord, for the triumphant hope that we have from the empty tomb. And I pray now, O Lord, as we come to your word that you would Give us a, a deeper understanding of this, this challenging text. And not only a deeper understanding, but Lord, give us hearts that are cultivated to receive the deep truths of your word. May they be planted deep in us, that they may bear fruit of transformation that would be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Just uh, since we weren't in Romans last week, just a little bit of a refresher uh, where we've been in Romans 7. In the first part of Romans 7, Paul has been talking all about sin and the law, and he's made the point that the law itself is holy and good, that it's sin that works through the law to, to bring about our spiritual death and condemnation. And so Paul has said that the problem is, is not the law, but, but sin. And he wants us, as we've seen, to see sin for the enemy that it is. It's like a beastly villain that is bent on our destruction. And now, as we enter into this last half of chapter 7, he, he takes us to an even deeper understanding of our, of our sinful nature. So starting at verse 14, Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what, I, what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You may be seated.
These, uh, these verses in Romans 7 are among the most heavily debated and most written about verses in the entire book. And we can't just gloss over the issues. This, this is a text that, that demands some teaching and explanation. And so we're going to take this text in, in at least a couple of Sundays, and what I want to do is more of a, of a teaching message for you this morning to kind of grapple with some of these issues that the text uh, presents. And so uh, what I want to do with you this morning is really really four things as we approach the text. Number one, to, to show you the dilemma that this text presents. Number two, to give you the, uh, some proposed solutions to that dilemma. And number three, to give you my take on what I think is the best way to approach this text. And then finally, we'll end with a couple of, of uh, points of application for our lives today. So we need to see first, as we uh, approach this text, we need to see uh, the dilemma that this text presents. And the dilemma is, is this, is that Paul uses language in this text that seems to contradict what he has said in Romans 6 and what he will say in Romans 8. And so in Romans 6 and in Romans 8, Paul describes the person in Christ as one who is free from slavery to sin. That, that language, that theme that is, is uh, repeated again and again throughout Romans 6 and then echoed again in Romans 8. One who is free from slavery to sin. So he said, for example, in chapter 6, verse 2, we are, we are those who have died to sin. And he said in verse 6, Our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And he says in verse 17, You used to be slaves to sin, but you have been set free from sin and have become now slaves to righteousness. And that was the consistent theme throughout Romans 6, and then we get to Romans 8, and Paul echoes some of those themes, and he says, for example, in Romans 8, verse 2, that through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And he said in verse 4 of chapter 8, that we do not live according to the flesh, that is the Greek sarx, and, and sometimes refers to uh, the physical body, but most often in Paul, as is the case here, refers to the sinful nature. So we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And he says in verse 15, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves. And so the clear message of Romans 6 and then again in Romans 8 is that in Christ, believers are free from slavery to sin. We, we talked about that a lot when we were in Romans 6 for, for several weeks, that we are free from sin's ruling power, free from sin's dominion, no longer prisoners to sin, but free to live a new life in Christ. But here in Romans 7, Paul uses language that seems to contradict that message. And so, for example, he says in verse 14, he says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He says in verses 22 to 23 that in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And so you just, do you see 
the dilemma. I, I want us to see the dilemma. I don't want us just to gloss over it and to, to not grapple with it. I want us to see that there, there is a real dilemma uh, posed by these verses. In Romans 6 and, and 8, Paul describes a believer as one who has been set free from slavery to sin, as one who is no longer a prisoner to the law of sin and death. And here in Romans 7, Paul describes himself in language uh, of slavery to sin and imprisoned by the law of sin. That's the dilemma. Now, there are, of course, a few proposed solutions to this dilemma. I'll give you the, the major, the, 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 there are really three major proposed solutions. The first is that Paul is describing in these verses the experience of an unbeliever. That according to this view, when Paul uses the first person language in this text, he's not referring to himself as a believer. He is either referring to his pre-conversion self, or he is using the word I to represent those who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Many have held this view over the years, dating all the way back to some of the early church fathers. It's been around for quite some time. And at the heart of this view is the idea that Paul's language here in Romans 7 is just, it's just, it's too strong and it's, it's too negative and it's too contradictory to what he has said in Romans 6 and 8 that he simply cannot be describing the experience of Christians. That's the first proposed solution to the dilemma. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, so these three views, are, there's, one, there's two extremes and one kind of in the middle. So at the other end of the spectrum, another proposed solution is that Paul is describing his own experience as a believer and thereby suggesting that this is the normal experience of mature Christians. And so when Paul uses the word I throughout the text, he is talking about himself in his present state as a believer, and, he, and he's talking about his own real struggle with sin. And the reason he uses such strong language is to show the seriousness of sin and, and, the, and the Christian's struggle against it. This is, uh, if you want to know some of the proponents of this view, uh, this is the view that's held by John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Augustine, just to name a few. Now, there is a, th a third proposed solution that is really in between these first two. And the third proposed solution is that Paul is describing the experience of, of, some, of those who are somewhere between uh, unbelief on one, on one end and, and mature belief on the other. And so different proponents of this view will use different language to describe it. So some, for example, will say that Paul is talking about the carnal Christian in these verses. And the carnal Christian is the language that Paul uses to describe the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The carnal Christian is one who has received Christ in true faith, one who has embraced Christ as Savior and Lord, but the corruption of the flesh is still strong. And the battle against sin has only just begun, and, and so the battle is fought with only meager success because faith is weak and the means of grace are not yet in full use. That is the, Paul's depiction of the carnal Christian. Um, other proponents of this view say that these verses describe, kind of similar but a little bit different, the, the new or the immature Christian uh, who is striving to live the Christian life in his or her own power. I think that one of the most compelling arguments among the proponents of this third view is that Paul is describing Jewish Christians 
who are still living under the law. And so they, they love God and his law, and they've taken those first steps of faith in Christ, but they have not yet been given the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or they have not yet come into the sort of the, the more mature stages of faith. And, and again, there are some pretty solid proponents, uh, uh, biblical scholars behind this view. Just a, a couple of them are Douglas Moo and John Stott. So those are just a, a brief overview of the three proposed solutions to the dilemma of this text. And I'll share in a minute uh, what I believe is, the, is the, the best one, the best interpretation. But before I do that, let me just pause and ask the question that maybe some of you are asking at this point. And that is, well, well why does this matter? Right? Well, you know, why not just leave this for the theology, you know, theology classrooms? Why are we even talking about how to interpret these verses? And, well, it matters because how we interpret these verses uh, has huge implications for how we understand sin in our lives and in the lives of others. And so, for example, just to give you a few a few questions to show why I think this is relevant and significant. What can we expect uh, victory over sin to look like? What, what, you know, what is, we, we talk about victory over sin. Well, what, what, what can we expect that realistically to look like? How do we counsel others who are struggling with sin? What, what, what are we going to say to them? What is our approach? What is our understanding of what that struggle with sin really is? Do our failures in, in the battle against sin mean that we are not true believers? Or maybe lower class Christians at best? You see, how, how we answer these questions is shaped by our understanding and our interpretation of Romans 7. So against that backdrop, we can turn then to to my take on this text. And I believe that the best interpretation of this text is the second one, which is the one that Paul is describing his own experience as a mature believer. Now, again, I'll say this is sort of one of those in-house debates. There are some solid people that are still within the realm of biblical Christianity who would, who would embrace a different opinion. That's, that's fine. I think this is the, the best, of the, has the most exegetically sound and the, and the most the best way to make sense of this text. He's describing his own experience as a mature believer, and I believe he's talking about himself and his real struggle with sin, and what he describes in these verses then is representative of all believers. And like I said, this is the view of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Augustine. And anytime you agree with those three, you are in, I would say, pretty good company. So that is my view. And I believe that there are at least... Four compelling points in support of this understanding of the text. There are as many as ten, but I whittle it down to four. So, a defense of the mature Christian view. Number one, this is just the plain reading of the text, right? If you read it and take it at face value, it is, the, it is most natural to assume that when Paul speaks in the first person present tense, he is describing his own experience in that present time as a mature Christian. That is the plain, straightforward reading of this text. And, and if he is describing his own experience as a Christian, then we can naturally assume by extension that, that, that what he says also applies to us as Christians. It would take a very compelling argument to overturn this plain, straightforward reading of the text. 
There is no other place in any of Paul's letters where he uses first-person present language to describe some kind of either past or other-than-himself experience. This would be utterly unique among Paul's writings. The second point is that the strong negative language that Paul uses is, in fact, consistent with his own humble opinion of himself as expressed in other letters. You know, Paul is known to, to paint himself in, in quite, you know, uh, morbid or, or self-deprecating terms. Throughout his letters, Paul consistently shows that he is very well aware of his own sinful nature. So, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians, he calls himself the least of the apostles. He tells the Ephesians that he is less than the least of all the saints or all the Lord's people. In his letter to Timothy, he refers to himself. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so when Paul, what Paul says here in Romans 7 is consistent with his self-deprecating tendency. It is like Paul to say, what a wretched man I am. And to speak of his struggle with sin as, as one who is like a slave to sin. The third point is that some of what Paul says in this text simply could not be said of unbelievers. So, for example, Paul says in verse 22 that in his inner being, he delights in God's law. That, that language of delighting in God's law in his inner being is language that, 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 is, that he uses elsewhere to refer to his, his converted Christian state. One who delights in, the law, in God's law in his inner being, in his very self, in his true self is one who is, is really one who has been converted. He says uh, he feels a deep sorrow over his sinful condition and he longs to be rescued. An unbeliever does not long to be rescued and does not feel this deep sorrow over their sinful state. And then he thanks God as the one who delivers him through Christ. This, this again is the language of one who has been awakened to the dreadfulness of sin and his need of a savior. These are only things that, that only, these are things that only believers can say, only those who have been converted. And finally, number four, there is a way, this is really the, so to address the, the biggest challenge to this mature Christian view, is the, the language that Paul uses. There, there is a way to understand his language about slavery to sin as consistent with not only consistent with Christian experience, but, con- but consistent with, with what he has said in Romans 6 and Romans 8. So let me, let me paint that for you. We, we saw in our study of Romans 6 that, that when Paul says that we have been set free from our slavery to sin, he is saying that we are, we are free from sin's dominion over us, from sin's absolute dominion and rule over us. We are no longer bound to live as captives under its rule. That's, that's what Paul is saying when he says we've been set free from slavery to sin. But the fact is, as we looked at when we studied this, th- th- that chapter, we sometimes return to the old slave master of sin. We sometimes impose upon ourselves this, this old slavery to sin. And so we are not slaves to sin in terms of our identity in Christ, which is an identity of, of freedom from the condemning and ruling power of sin. But we are still slaves to sin in the sense that in this life we cannot fully overcome sin. 
And we cannot fully live out our identity in Christ. And so sometimes we fail in our fight against sin. And in moments of failure, it can be said that sin gets the upper hand. And, and that sin reigns over us in those moments. That we, in those moments, return to the old slave master of sin. And this is why Paul warned us in Romans 6, where he talks all about the language of freedom from slavery to sin. In Romans 6, verse 12, he says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. And again, in verse 14, he said, Sin shall no longer be your master. He doesn't say sin absolutely unequivocally cannot be your master. He says an exhortation, a command, do not let sin be your master. And so these, these exhortations not to let sin rule over us means that there is a real danger that, that Christians will at times let sin rule over us. I think we see this even more clearly in Galatians 5 verse 1 where Paul says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, so we have been set free. Now, what are we going to do in response to that? Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So again, it is a real possibility for Christians to give in to the old ways, to be temporarily mastered by sin and to go back to slavery. Though in reality, we are no longer under the, do the dominion of sin as our slave master. In practice, we return to it again and again as if we were. And so I believe the best approach, the best interpretation of these verses is that Paul is describing the experience of Christians in their struggle against sin. I think Thomas Akempis expressed the same sentiment so well when he wrote, I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unmortified passions depress me. I, I will in my mind to be above all things, but I, but I am constrained to be beneath. So I, unhappy man, fight with myself and am made grievous to myself while the Spirit seeks what is beneath. And with that understanding of this text, we can then turn our attention to just a, a couple of practical matters. And so I want to leave us this morning with, with two. Uh, I, I preached this text, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, and I had five implications, I, I had two this morning. So two implications of this text for the Christian life. The first is that the Christian life is a life of war. The Christian life is a life of war, and it's not just war against outside enemies. There are, there's that kind of war as well. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against this, the rulers, the powers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And, and our, we have a, a battle, a war against the enemies of Satan, against the enemies of, 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 of the world, and against the enemy of death. All of these are outside enemies, but what Paul is talking about here is a war within a war that rages within each of us. The normal Christian experience is, is one of tension and conflict between our sinful nature, which is not fully slayed or fully dead yet, and our identity in Christ. Those two things are, are constantly at war. Our sinful nature and our identity in Christ, we, 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 we are constantly grappling with those two things. As Paul puts it, we, we long to do good. We, we long to do good. We, we know our identity in Christ. We, we long to live that out, but we, we cannot do the good that we want to do. 
We, we desire to delight in those things that are above. We do, desire to have hearts that are set on things above, as Paul says. But our sinful nature keeps pulling us to things below. We see this, this language of internal warfare and, 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 and inner struggle throughout the whole text here in Romans 7. Paul says in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. That's, that's that, that, that struggle. I, I can't do what I want to do. He talks about two different laws waging war within him in verses 22 to 23. He says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. There's this, these two laws are at war within him and within us. He describes the struggle in terms of two slaveries in verse 25. We are simultaneously slaves to God and slaves to sin. So he says in, in, in uh, verse 25 that I and my sinful, in my I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So this is the Christian life. We are, we are walking contradictions. We, we, we live in that constant tension between the self that has, that has been made, a new creation in Christ, and the self that is not yet fully freed from the sinful nature. And these two selves are at war with each other, and the Christian life is characterized then by this inner struggle. And I think there's something, I think, deeply assuring about that because it shows us that, you know, I think it, it frees us in a sense from, from being doomed to guilt and shame by knowing that this is the normal Christian experience. And so there's something deeply assuring about this understanding of Romans Seven. I think Paul summarizes really well this, this inner struggle, this, this inner conflict in another passage, another of his letters in Galatians 5, verse 17, where he says, the flesh, and again, that's the sinful nature, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They, they, ha they have different purposes, different aims, different desires, different agendas, uh, different, you know, the whole different approaches. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That is the Christian life. And so let me ask you this morning, do you, do you see that struggle in your own life? Do you experience that, that war within? Do you see the struggle as you look at your own life? And if you don't, then, you, you're, then frankly, you're not looking hard enough because it, it is there. It might be in the area of finances or in the area of, of greed or, or anger or gossip or lust or pride. There, there are a thousand ways that we can say with Paul, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Are you wrestling with habitual sin this morning? Can you resonate with Paul when he says, I do not do the good that I want to do? But the evil that I, I don't want to do, I, this I just, I keep on doing. At our house in Sherwood, we, we have uh, access to the park from our backyard. And 
Uh, one day, a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, a few of us went through our backyard uh, to get into the park. There's a big field there to, to play some baseball. So we walked through, the, through our backyard to get into the, the park to play baseball. And we told our dog, Ruby, that she had to stay in the yard. Sometimes, we, you know, we, we take her out and we put her on the leash. We walk the trails and stuff. But this time, she couldn't come with. So we told her she had to stay in the yard. And so she sat and stayed at the edge of the yard and watched us go out into the field in, in front of her playing baseball. And and uh, the longer that she sat there, the, the, the harder it was for her to stay. And you could, you could see the, the war raging inside of her, right? She, she wanted to obey. She really did. She wanted, to, she wanted to obey. She wanted to do what was right and good. But the, in the end, she just couldn't quite carry it out. It was just too, it was so tempting to see us all out there and we're running around, we're chasing balls, we're having all kinds of fun without her and finally she just couldn't take it anymore so she gave in to the evil that she didn't want to do. And she slowly, you could, you could see it, it was written all over her body language. She, she slowly crept out of the yard just, you know, slinking a few yards at a time with her head down and her tail between her legs. That, that, that image of Ruby's internal battle at the edge of our yard is, is what Paul is describing in our text. That, that, that's, that's the way the Christian life works. That, that's, what our, that's what our struggle with sin is like. As Paul says, we have the desire to do what is good, but, but we cannot carry it out. We, we try, but we, we can't fully carry it out. We, we do not do the good that we want to do, but the evil that we do not want to do, this we keep on doing. The Christian life is a life of war. And we need to see sin for the enemy that it is. It is a powerful enemy, and we cannot in this life fully overcome it. And we need to see it within ourselves. It is sometimes it's so easy for us to see, it, to see sin in others, and it's so hard to see it in ourselves. Paul, in this text, is shining a spotlight for us to be able to see not sin in others, but see the real struggle against sin in our own lives. John Owen once said, to wander carelessly through the fields as if there were no landmines, to amble aimlessly around the city like a tourist as if there were no snipers, to walk alone in enemy territory without the support and encouragement of your comrades, for a soldier to do such things is the height of folly. To be at war and not to make war is to court disaster. And therefore, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It would be the height of folly for the believer to act as if sin has no power over us. Or, or to give up the fight against sin under the false assumption that, that grace gives license to complacency. And so that's the first implication that the Christian life is a life of war. The second implication is really closely connected to the first, and that is that our struggle with sin then drives us to Christ. 
That is really, the, that's the, the beautiful culmination of this text. That's where Paul is taking us all, that's where, in his mind all along, that's where he wants us to go. That, that the war rages on and again and again we find ourselves defeated by our sinful nature and so we, we cry out with Paul, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this, this body that is subject to death? In, in other words, I, I can't conquer my sinful nature. I, I can't win the war on my own. I, I fight and I fight and I lose and I lose every single time. When I look within myself, I see sin and the condemnation that I deserve. And so who will rescue me from this this miserable condition that I put myself in again and again? And the answer comes in the very next breath where Paul says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The misery of our struggle with sin drives us to the cross. That the rescue that we crave is found in Christ alone. Remember when John the Baptist was, uh, was, was outside and he saw Jesus walking along the banks of the Jordan and he cried out with this, this wonder and joy at the sight of God's solution to humanity's deepest problem. And he, he saw him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. There is only one answer to humanity's deepest problem, and that answer is Christ. He came to defeat the enemy of sin. As John said in 1 John 3, verse 5, he appeared so that he might take away our sins. What a, what a, a gloriously beautiful, simple statement. He appeared so that he might take away our sins. And so we live in the assurance of victory over sin. Victory that we, that we do attain in part, even now, we, we gain progress over, our sinful, over our, our sinful tendencies. There is real sanctification. There is real, there is real progress and growth. There, there, there are real victories that we, can, that we can describe in the Christian life, but it is victory that is only partial and victory that will be only fully accomplished in the age to come. In our struggle against sin, if we look within, we see nothing but loss and despair. But when we look to Christ, our great high priest, we see victory and hope. Our struggle with sin drives us to Christ. The writer of Hebrews said that we have in Christ a great, a great high priest. A, a, a better high priest. You know, the book of Hebrews is all about every, that Jesus is better, a better covenant, a, a, better, uh, a better mediator, a better high priest, a, a better sacrifice, a better forgiveness. Everything is better. And so we have the great high priest. And he's not a high priest who is, as the writer of Hebrews says, unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but he is one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. So dealing in in real way with the the struggles of temptation, the struggles against evil, just as we are, but with this life-changing qualification, yet he did not sin. Which means that, that he alone won the war against sin. That he alone was not defeated by, by sin's power in his inner being. And through faith in him, he credits the victory to us. And so as the writer of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We all 
struggle with sin. We all have reason to cry with Paul, what a wretched person I am. But our, our struggle drives us to the cross where we're all of our sin, all of it, past, present, and future, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross where all of our sin is forgiven. And at the foot of the cross, we are given a new cry with Paul. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and preparation for communion this morning, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would shine your light, the light of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to show us those areas of struggle against sin, maybe some areas we haven't even seen for ourselves. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would lead us to those, those two cries as we see ourselves authentically, that we may cry, what a wretched person I am. But that you would lead us beyond that to, to Christ and the cross where all of our sin has been, has been nailed and taken away. The guilt of our sin sent away. So we can say with Paul, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would hear that you would search our hearts and receive our silent prayers. Lord Jesus, when we look within ourselves by the power of your Holy Spirit, we see, as Paul saw, that real and intense struggle against sin. We see, O oh Lord, that, that war that is raging within, and we we cry out with Paul, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? When, I, when we look within ourselves, we see that we are deserving of, of wrath and condemnation. That we cannot on our own defeat sin and, and, and win that struggle against sin that rages again and again. But, O oh Lord, as we look beyond ourselves to the glory of the cross, we see the cry of victory. We see, O oh Lord, what you have done for us, how you have taken away the guilt of our sin, how you alone are the one who attained complete victory over sin, and now through faith in you, you credit that victory to us. And so we can say with Paul, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we praise you for what you have done 
at the cross. May we feel it more deeply. May we see it more clearly as we eat the bread and drink the juice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.